Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we have Jay Richards with us. Jay Richards is a research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. Richards' articles and essays have been published in the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and a variety of other publications. His topics range from culture, economics, public policy, natural science, technology, and the environment. Today, Jay is joining us today to talk about some topics in his book, Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. Jay, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. You know, the subtitle in your book, it seems like we always have to sneak ti- the, the, the real key thesis mm. in, into a subtitle nowadays into books, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. Uh, it. You recount in the beginning of your book that you actually thought capitalism was the problem. And so uh, maybe you could start off with a little bit of your journey uh, from where you you were to where you are today. Absolutely. I went to college in the 1980s uh, prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union and had a political science and religion double major. Um, and but didn't really have well-developed uh, economic ideas or even political ideas when I first got to college. Ended up in a intro to political science course where one of the books that we read was the Communist Manifesto by uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, which is really a pamphlet more than a book. I mean, you can read it in 45 minutes. Uh, and I thought the professor had told the class at the beginning of the year that if we read all of the books through five times, we got an automatic A. So I thought, well, that's, that's easy. You know, it's a couple of short books required. And so I did that. Uh, it, it turns out what he had said was you're bound to get an A if you do that. In fact, he was right. But the effect on me, at least, of reading the Communist Manifesto as a freshman in college, an 18-year-old, uh, you know, brain full of mush, uh, was that by the end of my first semester of my freshman year, I really thought Christians ought to be socialists. I mean, it wasn't super sophisticated, but I thought, well, Jesus talks a lot about the poor. The Bible talks a lot about the poor. Uh, Socialists talk a really good game when it comes to the poor and defenders of the free economy, so far as I could tell at the time, didn't do that. And so I essentially thought, okay, something like the kind of socialist picture that Marx presents really made sense to me in my mind. I didn't buy his hardcore materialism or anything like that, but that's not how most people are captured by socialist ideas. They're usually captured by the language and the aspirations. And that's certainly what did it for me. But at the time I was, you know, still kind of dispositionally, I guess, a classical liberal. And so I thought, well, you really should read around a subject. You shouldn't just read people writing on one side of a controversy. And so I did that. I would go to the library and read the National Review and the New Republic beside each other. I eventually discovered this economist named Thomas Sowell, even had his Marxism book in another course on Marxism. So that by my senior year in college, I had come around to the view that in fact, of the live alternatives, a free market economy with the rule of law, private property and freedom of economic exchange was 
just the best economic system that we're likely to get this side of the kingdom of God. So that my economic views had changed 180 degrees, but I still kind of felt this moral dilemma that was due, I think, largely because I had also read Ayn Rand. I had read her Alice Shrugged and her argument that capitalism and altruism are incompatible, that, uh, you know, there was this fundamental difference between uh, what she thought of as capitalism and Christianity. And so I felt like I was in a double mind. I thought, well, economically, a market economy makes sense. Morally, it doesn't. And so I just lived with the tension for a couple of years, even until I got to graduate school. And when I finally felt like I got to dig into this, and I read this guy, Michael Novak, this Catholic theologian that I thought really reconciled the ideas well, he found a way to synthesize these things. And so I just finally realized, like, Ayn Rand just didn't describe the market economy accurately. But I never really honestly thought I was going to write about the subject because it was the early 1990s at this point, and I felt like the argument had been won insofar as a, a debate about economics could be decisively settled. This debate about these two fundamentally different ways of organizing an economy had just been settled. The Soviet Union collapsed, the Eastern European countries collapsed, everybody was talking free markets. The president of the United States, who was a Democrat, Bill Clinton, was kind of ardent free market, or at least rhetorically. So I just thought, that, that's not an interesting debate. I'm not going to focus on that at all. I'm going to write about science and faith issues. But that got me back on college campuses five, ten years later. And especially a lot of Christian college campuses, I discovered actually the same really bad ideas about economics that I had in the 1980s were still alive and well in the 1990s. And it's really just gotten worse since then with the first the tech crisis in 1999, then the financial crisis in 2008. And so I finally decided this is a topic that needs attention. And so honestly, it's really almost all I've focused on for about the last 13 years or so my career is just this intersection of Christianity and the market economy. Um, my publisher really wanted that subtitle with the word capitalism in there because it was uh, it's provocative, obviously. The book came out just after the financial crisis. I tend to think it's not the greatest word to use just because it has so much baggage and also because it's the word that Marx used. It's the word he popularized. If you read Adam Smith, he doesn't use that word. He just talks about a natural system of liberty. But, you know, really, in many ways, I think half the work is getting definitions clear and getting people to think about actual realities in economics rather than just these kind of aspirations and word associations. So, you know, this is honestly what I spend almost all my time on now. Yeah, I think the word capitalism has it has a lot of baggage, and I think we can use it to our advantage when we can identify what it is. But it, mm-hmm. you're probably as frustrated as I am when people blame non-capitalism <laughs> when people blame capitalism for things that aren't capitalist <laughs> yes that's maddening about you know pope francis often says things about capitalism and if you read what he says if you change the word to say latin american cronyism everything he says is exactly right it's just that it doesn't <laughs> apply to any position that any free market would actually defend and so it is you know very often you're just people aren't even talking to each other they were, we're talking past each other because you've got these mental associations do you think some of the the reason why marxism and um socialism communism those sort of uh, emotional appeals have been pretty popular is that i mean we're we're dealing with what 30 years almost for the fall of the soviet union yeah. and i I was young enough to remember it as an event, but I don't 
you know, you're a little older than I am, and you mm-hmm. probably can remember that this the, the experiment failed, and it was a notable thing to to, to watch happen. Yes. But you know, you have people nowadays. I mean, we've got kids that are, they're not even kids; they're adults who have grown yeah. up after after the the fall of the Soviet Union. And I mean, North Korea doesn't somehow seem to be the uh, opposite example of capitalism. So somehow they're just missing the boat in terms of like, here's why this is a horrible thing. Do Do you find that to be the? I mean, do you find that a viable explanation like oh they're just all these people who think this is a good idea we're just they just don't know any better because they were born too too recently yeah i actually do think that's a large part of the problem i mean i'd say it's it's twofold first the the leftists and socialists that were in the academy they didn't suddenly convert in 1990 or 1991 they went quiet for a while while i think socialists knew that look this is you know we're kind of um <laughs> we're out of season right now this is bad branding but, you know, I mean, within 10 years, you had other financial events that happened. And so they sort of emerged. And then you had these people that were probably kids, little kids at the time, or maybe not even born. All of a sudden, the same kind of moral intuitions that made socialism popular the first time are alive and well in the minds of these young people. And they do not have the concrete memory of the Cold War to anchor them to historical reality. They're, again, able to just say socialism and picture this nice Scandinavian village where everybody has a Volvo in the garage and plenty of food and social support, which is what, if you ask a millennial, tell me what you mean by socialism, they do not say, well, you know, the gulags in the Soviet Union. They don't think that. They picture some kind of uh, Scandinavian village where people are wealthy for some reason that's never defined and everyone's living in solidarity. That's the mental picture. Well, that does sound nice. It just doesn't have anything to do with socialism as it actually exists in the real world. You talked about the moral intuition of, you know, appealing to things like socialism, whatever that mm-hmm. intuition seems. I mean, is is capitalism the best we can do uh, or is it actually a more moral option? Yeah, I think it's actually it's given the live alternatives. It is the most just option. It might not be uh, compared to the kingdom of God, but in the kingdom of God, there's no want. There's no scarcity. Uh, there's no sin. There's no sorrow. Um, this side of glory, though, the question is going to be, okay, we've got limited options here. Do you want a system uh, in which people, at least in principle, are able to actually bring themselves out of poverty, create enough wealth for themselves and others that they can live a flourishing spiritual and, and physical life? If you want that for an economic system, there's actually there's only one game in town. All the others are the best that could be said for the others is that are not nearly as good at doing those things as a market economy. Uh, but in fact, most of the live alternatives that attract people morally actually are terrible. They lead to the deaths of millions of people. They lead to despair. Uh, they don't lead either to, to sort of material or to spiritual flourishing. And so I really do think as long as you define the market economy and or capitalism, whatever you want to call it, as what it actually is, as Okay, a society with a limited government that is strong enough to enforce the rule of law, but not so large that it violates the rule of law, uh, private property rights, a vibrant uh, civil culture that exists apart from the state, and then economic freedom, that, that's, those are good things. Those aren't necessary evils. Those are good things. Yeah, the people will be sinful. They will make bad choices, but that's the nature of freedom. It's not the nature of this particular economic system. And in a market economy, as Adam Smith said, at least what you have is even when people are acting for bad motives, for greed or whatever, 
Um, the best way for them to fulfill that and to succeed is to serve other people, is to provide goods and services for other people. That's what that's the best kind of economy you can have in in a world this side of glory. In other words, in a fallen world, you want an economic system that can channel not just our ingenuity and creativity, but even our vices into more socially beneficial outcomes. And that's what a healthy market economy does. Once before with people who are on the left. And when we talk about the definition of either free market or capitalism or however we end up talking about it in that particular conversation, what tends to inevitably happen is I will make the point that, well, because you have uh, special favors by, let's just pick on Walmart for a moment, mm-hmm. that, you know, Walmart got huge tax breaks in this county and therefore these, you know, they got special advantage and therefore that's not really the free market driving away the mom and pop shops. Let's just as for sake of an example yes and the accusation toward me is like well you're just kind of committing the no true scotsman fallacy like that everything Mm -hmm. that's not working right about these situations you're just blaming it's not true capitalism and therefore you know we you can't actually defend against capitalism um or you can't actually come (laughs) against capitalism because well every example i throw at you you're just telling me that's not really capitalism no, that's right. That that is a problem. I mean, because you don't you don't want to do that. You don't want the kind of no true Scotsman fallacy where you just stipulate after every objection. Well, that's not what I'm defending. That's why I do think it's important to defend ahead of time to say, here's what I mean. Here's the idea and the regime that I support, and I know that it's not perfectly exemplified anywhere. But just as people that defend freedom of the press or freedom of religion or freedom of speech, they don't have to stipulate ahead of time that. You know, it sort of creates nirvana in the same way. I I don't think the burden for people who defend economic freedom should be any higher. Um, And and then pointing out, well, some kind of cronyism is actually cronyism. I think that's perfectly legitimate. But even, you know, in the case, you know, I I would want to hear the actual detailed arguments, say, with respect to Walmart uh, that you're describing. But there's no doubt that, say, in the case of Walmart, very often Walmart beat out little mom and pop shops because little mom and pop shops were monopolies and people freely chose to go to Walmart when they had a choice. And so that is, I mean, now you can call that a cost. Um, Competition has a cost. But uh, those of us that defend free markets think the cost is much lower than the benefit for, for everyone involved. And so I don't think free marketers should pretend that different economic you know, systems don't come with costs that, you know, our, our side is only benefits and no costs. I just think the argument needs to be that, look, there's going to be costs and benefits in anything you do. And a market economy, the benefits vastly outweigh the cost. And there's nothing intrinsically immoral about it. There's nothing that violates fundamental moral principles. I, mean, I think that's part of the problem with socialism is that you can make a natural law argument that, Socialism and the violation, you know, denial of private property is in fact an intrinsic moral evil. And in a market economy, whatever else can be said for it, recognizes that that natural right, this natural law principle uh, of a right to private property. You know, dealing with the idea of a moral society or just the morality of the of of economic systems, and and I realize that we could have a society that is pretty. I would say dominantly moral and mm-hmm. it could look like something closer to socialism than it does to capitalism. But, you know, leaving all those like theoretical possibilities aside, sure. Uh, one of the things you talk about in your book is the idea of subsidiarity mm. and where does the locus of responsibility lie in terms of dealing with problems? Because I mean, really the, the economic, uh, 
reality is that we have scarcity, we have conflict because of human nature, and there are mm-hmm. ways to deal with that that are obviously off limits to anybody, left and right on the spectrum. I mean, right. the, the actual totalitarianism that we know existed uh, and still exists is, is off the table for a lot of people, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- talk to us a little bit about subsidiarity. Explain to our listeners what, what does that mean and how does that play out with respect to economics? Yeah, it's. I think it's one of the least appreciated ideas. It's a big 50-cent word, but it, subsidiarity just basically says uh, that a social entity or jurisdiction that's closest to a problems should, all things being equal, be the entity that deals with the problem. So in other words, it's simply a nature of knowledge. You know better than anybody else what your children need. You know what allergies they have. You know what happens if they eat too much wheat or whatever. And so all things being equal, you as a parent of this child have the primary responsibility for that child. It's only when you break down, right, when you become a drug addict or something like that, that then the next jurisdiction kicks in. So in this case, it might be the neighborhood or it might be the the more extended family. Many of our problems in the 20th century and now in the early 21st, I'm convinced, are the result of much larger jurisdictions cutting through all these all these kind of concentric circles of responsibility so that um, you know when there's poverty in a particular location it's suddenly the the Department of Labor or the federal government gets involved in that when you know all the lower jurisdictions have have not kicked in and so the basic idea is really it's a nice kind of analytic tool that uh, the way I put it that um, social dynamics don't always scale so in other words, things that work at the level of a family, the kind of informality, the kind of, you could call it socialism, but that'd be weird to say my family is socialist. It's just that we have, you know, it's much more of a a kind of sharing regime in which you have kind of these informal uh, bonds of uh, of control and interaction that works at the level of a family. But if the family dynamic doesn't work when you get to a thousand people, you can't pull it off. Um, and what works in a city state like Singapore is not going to work in a nation state that traverses a continent. And so often, I think thinkers on the left assume that what will work at the scale of a family works at larger scales. It doesn't. So in some ways, I, I think uh, when we're critiquing socialism, we both want to critique uh, their bad economics, but also, that, frankly, their bad understanding of society. I mean, they've got the word socialism, social, in their name, and they seem completely uninterested in focusing on the different way in which different aspects of society interact. So that the way I interact with the people at my parish or with my extended family or my nearby family or people that I work with uh, at my job these are all complex, different kinds of social relationships, and you want those insofar as they can be to be preser- preserved so that a political economy doesn't just completely wipe all those out and replace them with a single unitary relationship of the naked individual and the state. I think that's the besetting sin of socialism and progressivism is it can't imagine other kinds of relationships except the relationship of a, uh, the ruled and the ruler, the state and the individual. It is pretty ironic, especially for Christians on the left who are very much about the idea of community or communalism, not to go mm-hmm. with the economic way of looking at it. And, the, you know, they use scripture to talk about how 
or they use scripture to defend the uh, God's preferential option for the poor, that God cares about how the nations and rulers treat those who are on the margins. Yet they, and, and what's weird is, and I, and I like how you talk about it with scalability, like these things mm-hmm. aren't scalable. You know, the, the, the answers that God gave Israel to deal with the poor among them uh, with maybe a couple million, you know, off the top of my head, I, I don't right. know the numbers of how many people were in Israel through the exile and, and post-exilic times, you know, for, for a couple million, uh, may, maybe, you know, a small dose of or, or a larger dose of socialism could, could work in better ways than it does at 300 million people or for that matter, globally. And yet, what what's ironic to me, and I kind of started that sentence and then left it. But what's ironic to me was <laughs> is that they the left makes fun of people on the right for being anti science, mm-hmm. and what ends up happening is like, well, science has shown us that you know the Earth is not six days old, and yet when we get to economic science, it's all like, well, that doesn't count, or yeah. that's that's not something worth taking. You know, they use they don't take the Bible seriously when it comes to some things, but they do with others, and yet it's still the same. Like there's still the same context problem of, hey, God offered a solution or or gave demands to Israel at a certain time and place, and it was, right. it was right for them, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean it's right for us today. Yeah, I mean, you touch on the thing that is actually sort of behind my entire book, Money, Greed, and God, that I didn't state as explicitly as I should have, which is just the reality that economics is not just a sort of academic discipline in a university, it is also about a domain of reality. So just as chemistry and the periodic table of the elements, it describes a sphere of God's creation, which has its own rules and internal logic that can be discovered. I mean, the periodic table of the elements wasn't always filled in like it is now. We understand it very well. In the same way, economics as a discipline, when it's working right, is uncovering principles and empirical facts about this social domain of reality that we can call the market or the economy. And so those just are what they are. The reality of scarcity or the generally inverse relationship between supply and demand or the way in which prices function to communicate information, those are things that we know. There, You could say those are facts, those are truths that everyone needs to take account of. And I've noticed when having debates with people on the left, especially Christian left, they very often don't seem to recognize that there's stuff we actually know about economics. And you don't get to just decide that you're going to ignore the reality of scarcity unless you really don't care about the well-being of people. So in some ways, if if I can get people to say, yeah, you actually are, there's certain economic truths that are independent of particular theories. And then if you can get them to stipulate a couple, you can actually have a real disagreement. Um, but sometimes they're not willing to really concede that prices function in a certain way. And so then you really are just constantly talking past each other. But in many ways, my book, Money, Greed, and God, was an attempt. It's an attempt to say, okay, if you can just understand these things about economic reality, you're going to make a lot fewer stupid mistakes than you would otherwise. Yeah, but you know, Jay, economics was invented by white, the white man, so I don't think it counts, does it? I <laughs> no, mean, that's, I that's where they're going to go. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because it, that attitude is, you know, can you imagine saying that about vaccines or about medicine or about clean water? Well, I don't want to impose our white Western ideas about water pathogens on everybody else. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and so you really are. It's like when people say that, they're saying, okay, you, you then don't think there are any economic truths. And believe it or not, I actually had a debate with a guy one time and he had had too much to drink, fortunately, but he actually said that. I was trying to get the audience to think, okay, he doesn't actually believe there are any economic truths. 
And he said that. He actually said, well, I really don't think there are any economic truths, at which point he completely lost the audience. But very often, I think these debates are between people that in general say, look, I think there's just some truths that we know about that we need to take account of, and others who want to sort of deny that, that want to treat all economic questions as if they're just a question of ethics or they're just a question of aspiration, and there's not any right answer. Yeah, I mean, I've I've said this several times on this on this program that you know if it weren't for economics to ground me, I would have probably become a leftist, uh, head, heading in that direction. Yeah, and it, but because it appeals entirely to people's moral intuitions. I mean, I think we all, if your conscience is properly formed, you're going to feel in your bosom a sense of solidarity to people, um, especially people that you interact with. That is both natural and good. If you don't have that, you're going to be messed up psychologically and morally. The problem is that what socialism does is it short circuits that feeling of solidarity that we ought to have into a coercive political environment in which solidarity gets mis- misinterpreted. And so unless people get to a kind of stage of, I think, intellectual maturity where they see those differences, uh, it just gives people a way to kind of satisfy their feeling of solidarity without having to do any real hard things. Well, yeah, and the people who advocate for this, I'm like, okay, that's great, but not everybody wants to live in solidarity with you. <laughs> and so true. you're going to have to make them do what you think is right for them, and how are you going to accomplish that? No, exactly. What's the best way yeah. to accomplish that? So <laughs> this does, you know, it did raise one question in my mind, and I've, I haven't heard this articulated explicitly by those on the left, but I could imagine that this is the the question they might ask of, of you in this way. And so, you know, we talk a little bit about the social dynamics that don't always scale. You, you mentioned that a little earlier, and I, I completely agree. And, and I often will make the case that if you really want social justice, you dear leftist, if you really want social justice, then you cannot use the state to achieve it, uh, based, basically because the methods that you use are neither social nor they are they just. But you also say that those in in principle of subsidiarity that those who are closer to the problem should be those who are are able to solve it and i would mm-hmm. say here's possibly an objection maybe maybe get your thoughts on this sure that the there are costs associated with being too uh localized um in terms of like your ability to problem solve so for instance yes. let's say there's a region in the country um maybe it's a certain state maybe it's something else but a region in the country where there are uh, there's poverty. And mm-hmm. the reasons for that poverty, let's just stipulate for the sake of argument, that you and I would assess that and agree, oh, right. well, this is a much bigger picture. This is a much larger trend. This isn't just a matter of those three counties in this particular mm-hmm. state that have a, a symptom of poverty, and that we should just let them deal with it. It's possible that the costs of of uh, getting that problem solved need to be borne by a much higher institution, either the state government or the federal government, even if the decision-making process is done at the local level. I don't think that subsidiarity by itself gives you an easy answer to those questions. And so you, I say, look, let's take the particular instance um, you take it in mind. So for instance, some kind of externality like environmental uh, problems where, you know, two parties are, trading say wood there's a wood provider a wood mill and customer and it puts sludge in the river and it goes downstream and harms the third party that's a case in which you got to figure out okay so how do we make sure that all the real costs being borne are internal to the exchange and so in some cases that might be some kind of state regulation or a different way of structuring the property law or something like that but very rarely do, do i hear have i ever heard a real brain twister where people come up with scenarios 
that immediately justify, okay, here we're dealing with a local family problem in this one little town of Childress, Texas, and this can only be solved by, solved by the federal government. I mean, in some ways, no one would ever want to even make that argument. And so it's by not having to make the argument that they're able to get away with it. And so this is why so many problems end up getting immediately federalized or even transnationalized. So suddenly it's the UN's responsibility. Um, it, you know, you just want to hear the particulars of any argument, but very often what happens is that somebody makes an argument for the breakdown of the lowest jurisdiction, and then they don't argue for the next largest jurisdiction. They immediately run it all the way up to the, the most large and abstract and coercive institution. That just is not justified. Well, I think some people would say that our education, the the government or public education system mm -hmm. is running in a way that I'm describing because the money comes from, like, think about it this way. There are wealthy people in California who, you know, the Fed, who pay taxes to the federal government, and some of those taxes are going to help poor schools in West Virginia. Right. And and we would say that, that in, in one sense, that's not mm -hmm. under the principle of subsidiarity, but... You know, if you take all the poor people in West Virginia, they're not going to be able to fund their way out of of better education. No, that's right. And so, I mean, though, I don't know how much most of of ed, uh, public education, at least uh, primary and secondary, is actually funded at the state level. I, I don't know how much more significant the sort of uh, national chunk of that. But in any case, even then, uh, you'd still have a pragmatic argument. You say, okay, the federal government needs to be involved in this in some way. Let's just stipulate that. I don't actually think that's true, but let's stipulate it. It still wouldn't follow that the way in which we're doing this makes the most sense. It might be that actually child tax credits uh, that, that people that are poor benefit from and they get a voucher or some something even less intrusive and are actually able to use market competition to improve their children's education. Whatever uh, you think about that in, in the abstract, it would surely at least be a better proposal. What we have right now, unfortunately, is sort of the, the, the worst possible arrangement. And so I, my view is always, look, you might have an abstract political ideal that never actually is actualized. And so you have to actually deal with political realities on the ground. Um, but there's a heck of a lot more market-friendly, uh, competitive way of doing this than we're doing now in which you know i think it's both not delivering as good of a product and also just giving the federal government far too much say in it hey folks norman horn here from lci would you do us a quick favor and rank us on apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us high rankings helps us get the word out there and now let's get back to the show so switching gears a little bit um because you know i brought brought up the example of uh, dealing with the issue of poverty. We've kind of talked about that a little mm. bit is, you know, what did you learn? And you, you said you read through the scriptures one year uh, very rapidly, just so yes. you wouldn't dwell on any particular passage or whatever. And just to kind of get an overview, what did you learn about poverty and God's heart for the poor? Well, I mean, it, it really jumps out at you. A couple of things jump out at you is that God talks a lot about the poor, the plight of the poor, the, um, evils that the rich can, you know, visit upon the poor. Jesus also talks a lot about hell, incidentally. If you spend the weekend reading the gospel, you're like, okay, Jesus actually talks a lot about hell. I don't, you know, you might not notice that superficially. Um, but I also came away with a, a wider appreciation of the fact that certainly much of the Old Testament was dealing with particular social arrangements that don't apply today. So as you said earlier, the things that make sense for a really an extended family, these were the 12 tribes of Israel were tribes. They were uh, uh, descended from brothers. 
um, and in a, very much in an ancient and agrarian context. And so the way in which people deal with things socially, the way in which poverty is relieved and families interact, is going to be different than it is in a modern post-industrial kind of high-tech information economy like we have. And so you get some really key principles about justice and fairness uh, and the plight of the poor and our obligation to do something about the plight of the poor. But that doesn't tell you by itself exactly what the best methods for actually helping poor people uh, are. You still have to figure out what that is. Yeah, that seems to be the big debate. What I think is interesting is I'm, I was telling my wife the other day that based on given trends, by the time our children are adults uh, or, or our age, that poverty will probably have been eradicated in, in the world. And mm-hmm. she just looked at me funny and I, and I said, yeah, did you, did, you didn't know that. And she's like, no. And I'm like, these are, these are the kinds of arguments I keep hearing. And, you know, I wonder if in 20 years we're going to be having this argument. I mean, I realized in one sense, there will always be someone who is poor. Right. Uh, but on another, it's not going to be the you know the headline statistics of you know thirty thousand people died of malnutrition this month or something like that. We're we're unlikely to have those kinds of things. Maybe under tragedy, tragic circumstances like tsunamis or whatever. But right. that that's an optimistic thing to look forward to. Yet. The headlines that grab us and the the rhetoric, and again, you talk in, in your book about rhetoric that grabbed you as a young mm-hmm. uh, uh, temporary Marxist, um, and it kind of grabs us and, and tugs at our heartstrings are things that are they, they're sensational and they they get our attention because they they are tragic in one sense yet at the same time there is there's there's often never really a like here's what we should do about it you know here we as individuals should do about it it's always a solution especially for those on the left it's always a solution of well we just need more money from other people yeah that's right and i mean i think that you're right certainly if the un is right we're going to eradicate at least absolute poverty in the next 20 or 30 years i think that's I think that's perfectly realistic. I think technology itself is going to push us in that way. What we're never going to get rid of is inequality. And so as long as a person thinks that one person is rich because someone else is poor, that is, there's this causal relationship, um, then people will always be able to point to inequality as somehow inherently unjust. And some kinds of inequality are unjust. But if somebody's rich because they created value for other people, they didn't do that by extracting value. They did it by creating value. And so we need to be less hung up on, you know, I say, look, the problem is not a gap between two people. Uh, the problem is that if one of the people is genuinely poor and one of the people is genuinely rich, the problem isn't that somebody's rich, it's that somebody's poor. And so you want to focus on what caused that and right. don't assume that they connect in some way. And so I can imagine 30 years from now, even this has already happened. What we mean by poverty now is different than what people imagine poverty be, to be 100 years ago. Um, I could imagine the same thing happening in 30 years where no one's poor in, the, in an absolute sense, but there are poorer people relative to some other rich people and we'll spend all of our time fixated on that. Yeah, I mean, I think with the advent of markets, or I think Deirdre McCluskey calls it trade-tested betterment. That's mm-hmm. her, that's her clunky replacement for the word capitalism. Yeah, I, you know, it's redefined that the word poor means destitute to the word poor means at the bottom of the economic scale, and I think that's, that's right. a major improvement. It is. It's a major improvement, especially when you notice that the scale is going up even way down at the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yesterday there was a news 
article that came across my Facebook feed, and the title was that in 2017, the top 1% grabbed all of the gains of increased wealth. So it's like there's a little nod to the fact that they're, instead of thinking of it as a static pie, that the wealth grew. So at least there's like, at least there's a nod toward that. But you know what? Who ate all the extra pie that was created? It was the top 1%. Yes. And, and... that no longer pulls at my heartstrings in the same. It actually, no. it actually pushes a lot of buttons for it me. It irritates you now. Yeah, same thing. Same, but why does that supposed to do that? I mean, why do people get all upset about it? You know, there were, the person who posted this uh, had you know the reactions that Facebook now gives you is not just to like, but is to also. This has been a while. I'm, this is. Yeah. It's not like this just happened. But any, everybody <laughs> knows this uh, is anger. That yes. it was anger or sadness or wow. Those were the, there was never someone who would liked that article post. Why is it that that still gives us the reaction it's, of angry, wow, or sad? It's the fall. I mean, I do think that in many ways, I mean, people are all tempted toward envy. And so, um, it, you know, if you're fallen, you, there's still this kind of impulse toward envy. And this is a kind of what I call a displaced envy. And so you can feel like if some guy's really rich, you're not feeling envious directly you're imagining you're feeling the envy of what you imagine to be another poor person and then that allows you to indulge envious feelings and feel self-righteous about it because you're feeling for feeling for someone else rather than yourself and instead you want to say okay how did this guy get rich um and it, look in an information economy where you've got zero marginal costs for digital goods some people are going to get a fabulously wealthy, and that's been happening. But they've generally not been doing that at anyone's expense. And I think that's the that in your mind when you hear that, you know perfectly well that Steve Jobs could get rich by creating value. But if you don't know that, then you immediately connect one person's poverty relative to another's as wealth being extracted from that person. Once you realize that the economy and trade are not zero-sum games. The whole way you evaluate these dynamics morally changes. There are cases, though, where extraction is happening at a small level. So, let you know, imagine, I don't know what the gains were in 2017, but in terms of world, world economic wealth measurement, but imagine that of those gains, about 10 to 20 percent was because there has been extracted uh, wealth, whereas, yes. whereas it's not it's not always a win-win. Um, that's right. It, there is a small amount of the economy that is zero sum. I mean, we do have. I mean, that's why we call it cronyism in the first place. Yeah. Because we have something. Right. To, we have something to call cronyism. Um, Absolutely. So you know, there is there there is that assessment. Do you do you find yourself in debates or discussions with people where you realize, okay, well, that yeah, we got to get rid of that, or we have to either maybe not legislate, but that where you admit, okay, well, that's a problem because that is creating more zero-sum situations than than anybody would want. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a whole book on this in 2013 on the fifth anniversary of the financial crisis called Infiltrated, uh, where I talked about these the perverse incentives that have been set up in the mortgage market. But again, it was not an example of what a market would do on its own. Banks in the free market don't give out loans that they have every reason to think are not going to be repaid. Banks only do that when you create incentives in which they banks can um, benefit from risk and not suffer, you know, benefit if they win and not suffer if they lose. And unfortunately, that's what we got in the financial crisis. Within two weeks of the financial crisis in September of 2008, the media was blaming it on capitalism and deregulation and greedy banks. But if you actually looked at the details, it was largely the result of 
completely screwy incentives that got set up by affordable housing policies pushed by every politician. Um, and so that's a, very often the things that people are complaining about are actually cronyism. I mean, it gets more and more difficult as the economy gets more and more cronyist. But I'd want to look at the 2017 numbers, but I would suspect a lot of that uh, wealth extraction or wealth creation was actually in high tech sectors and digital sectors, which at least right now are are fairly competitive. I mean, uh, that that could change. The banking industry, on the other hand, is unfortunately, for the most part, been what you know uh, fused it to help with the federal government for some time. In your book, Money, Greed, and God, the chapter layout is essentially uh, questions, and they each deal with a particular myth that a lot of people believe about the economy. And so, we obviously, we don't have time to go through all of them, but has there been one that's particularly pernicious in your experience, even since you wrote the book and, and have probably failed to convince the entire world that you were right? <laughs> I definitely the piety myth, which is in some ways what we've been talking about. That's just attaching what you want to happen with what actually happens. That is confusing your good intentions with the actual consequences of policies. And then the other one, which I kind of already mentioned in passing, is the zero, zero sum idea that, um, that either trade itself must always involve a winner or a loser, or that wealth gets only transferred and never created. That's, those are kind of at the bottom of almost everyone's misunderstanding of economics. And it's really simple just to understand, no, actually there can be win-win arrangements, there can be wealth that's created rather than transferred. Um, and you get people kind of thinking that way, it, it really clears things up. The one that I think should not be tough for people is definitely the piety myth. Look, we all know the difference between what we want to have happen and what actually happens. And if you want to be morally responsible, you want to think through the actual consequences of policies and not just what you want to have happen. Yeah, that's that's a, a very important thing that our good intentions don't accomplish uh, everything. I mean, we have to actually no. act, we have to act more than just intend. So yes, know. and we and we have to act in a world that we don't control all the rules to. Um, you don't. You can intend all you want for gravity to not exist, but it's going to exist. And you can intend all you want for there not to be trade-offs or opportunity costs, but they're going to exist nonetheless. Yeah, but if we can just get the state to have everyone act the way we want them to, <laughs> it'll be perfect. It'll be perfect, and we'll have Nirvana. <laughs> That's the way it works. Jay, what's uh, on horizon for you? Are you working on any other books that you yeah. can share with, with us? Absolutely. In fact, I have a book coming out on June nineteenth called "The Human Advantage." Which which is kind of the sequel to Money, Greed, and God. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's essentially a defense of human uniqueness and an argument that machines are not going to take all the jobs, that in fact, machines are going to do, smart machines are going to do a heck of a lot more than we imagine they could do. But that that is an opportunity as well as a cost and that uh, there's a way to adapt, to prepare so that um, our labor and our work continue to be valuable even in an age of smart machines. Well, that would be an interesting topic to talk about. So we'll have to have you back to join us on on that because that's a very big. I mean, we even have libertarian economists have some worries about that. Absolutely, uh, as well. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'd love to, to come back. It comes out in June. Maybe we can talk right after it comes out. Yeah, excellent. Well, Jay, thanks for joining us today and uh, giving us some uh, setting us straight on some economic myths and just kind of how to think about capitalism from a moral perspective. It's great to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.